few weeks that prayer that we call the Lord's Prayer. And today we come to the theme of forgive us our sins. By way of background, I want to read one of those wonderful stories or parables that Jesus told, probably the best known of all. It's commonly known as the parable of the prodigal son. And you may want to just listen to the story, but there are Bibles if you want to follow. We'll help to have a Bible anyway for later on. But this story you'll find in Luke 15, and it's page 1049 in the Pew Bibles. It's the third of three stories that Jesus told. One about a lost sheep, a lost coin, and now a lost son. Jesus continued, there was a man who had two sons. The younger one said to his father, Father, give me the share of the estate. So he divided his property between them. Not long after that, the younger son got together all he had, set off for a distant country, and there squandered his wealth in wild living. After he'd spent everything, there was a severe famine in that whole country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to a citizen of that country who sent him to his field to feed pigs. He longed to fill his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything. When he came to his senses, he said, How many of my father's hired men have food to spare? And here I am starving to death. I'll set out and go back to my father and say to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired men. So he got up and went to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son, threw his arms around him and kissed him. The son said to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Quick! Bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. So they began to celebrate. Meanwhile, the oldest son was in the field. When he came near the house, he heard music and dancing. So he called one of his servants and asked him what was going on. Your brother has come, he replied, and your father has killed a fattened calf because he has him back safe and sound. The older brother became angry and refused to go in. So his father went out and pleaded with him. But he answered his father, Look, all these years I've been slaving for you and never disobeyed your orders, yet you never gave me even a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours who has squandered your property with prostitutes comes home, you kill the fattened calf for him. My son, the father said, you're always with me. Everything I have is yours. But we had to celebrate and be glad because this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. Well, it's a wonderful story, isn't it, that fires the imagination. Perhaps seen most beautifully in Rembrandt's painting of the scene of the prodigal son. Maybe you can't see it too clearly on the screen with the light. If you want to see it in the original, I think you need to go to St. Petersburg. It's a wonderfully graphic picture. If you've ever seen it before, have you noticed that the father has both a male and a female hand on the shoulder of the son, reflecting God's character and care. 
But have you ever wondered what happened next? Did the elder brother respond to his father's appeal? Cool down and join the party? Or did he never speak to his younger brother ever again? And what about the younger brother? Did he ever get itchy feet? Or did he settle down to life back home? Of course, though the Mon writer and certainly the filmmaker would have made a sequel, such speculation is pointless because it's a parable. The story with a point and it tells it very clearly. However, it doesn't end with the words and they all lived happily ever after. None of the stories in the Bible do except the one big story which tells us right at the end and they all lived happily in the hereafter. But all the other stories, our stories, within that big story are real stories, not fairy stories and they involve people like you and me. Rebellious sons and daughters who need to be forgiven and resentful sons and daughters who need to forgive. And, most important of all, a loving father who welcomes both with open arms and a warm embrace. We've seen in this series, Learning from the Lord's Prayer, that this is a prayer addressed to the Father, because we pray, Father, addressed to the Father by those who are his children, his sons and daughters. And that's the key to understanding this prayer, and none more so than when we come to this phrase, forgive us our sins, for we also forgive everyone who sins against us. In his book on the Sermon on the Mount, in which you find the Lord's Prayer in a different context and slightly different words, Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones comments, who is the man who can pray, forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors? He is the man who already has the right to say, our Father. It is not a prayer for anybody, but only for those who have become children of God in Christ Jesus. And it's with that in mind that we need to look this morning at our theme, forgive our sins, and you'll find the prayer, of course, in Luke's Gospel, if you've still got the Bible open at Luke 15, if you turn back to Luke 11, and it's verse 4. And we're simply looking this morning at this sentence. It's page 1042 if you have a pew Bible. It's one sentence. Forgive our sins, for we also forgive everyone who sins against us. And I simply want to say there are two parts to the prayer. Two phrases that make it up. Forgive our sins. One for we also forgive those who sin against us too. And I simply want to leave with you very simply this morning, there are two vital truths about forgiveness that we learn from this. First of all, the first phrase, forgive us our sins, or just simply forgive our sins, tells us something about how our relationship with our Father is maintained. You see, Forgiveness only becomes, forgiveness is a relational term, is it not? It only becomes important when someone does something to someone else which requires that person to forgive them, to grant them pardon for what they've done. 
Now, we all know about this problem in human relationships. I have no doubt at all that when you came in, or now already, as we begin to think about forgiveness, for some of us, immediately to mind will come something that someone did to us that we have found hard to forgive, and maybe even this morning, it's too close to the mark and too painful to think about. However, that is not where the prayer begins, and it is not where we must begin. No, the prayer begins not on the horizontal level between human beings, it begins on the vertical level between human beings and God. A breakdown in relationship. And the first part then is addressed to God. We are saying to God, forgive us our sins. Now, depending on what part of the world you come from and what church tradition you belong to, when you pray this prayer, if you were taught it as a child, in English anyway, you either say, forgive us our debts, or forgive us our trespasses. Both express similar ideas. That we owe a debt to God, and that we have deviated from the way. We have trespassed. It's not a very common word, trespass. The only place you see it is outside places you're not supposed to go. Trespassers will be prosecuted. Well, we're all trespassers as far as God is concerned. We've gone where we shouldn't have gone. And in Luke's Gospel, he uses a more broad word, the word sins. Expressing the idea, the word sins expresses the idea that we've missed the mark. Fallen short of the target. And all of these words, and many others in the Bible, express the fact that there has been a serious breakdown in relationship between God and human beings. One which began when our first parents, in the first book of the Bible, in the first chapter, and the third chapter is described, our first parents rebelled against God and went their own way. When they trespassed when they sinned. And since then, every human being, I don't know quite a lot of you here this morning, but I know one thing for absolute certainty, that each one of us, none more so than me, each one of us are sinners. Each one of us has gone our own way, done our own thing, missed the mark. And the result is that we are now in debt to God an astronomical debt that we have no hope of repaying. We need God's forgiveness, a debt we can never repay. Now, Jesus told another wonderful parable to illustrate this. It was a parable, it's called the parable of the two debtors. It's about a man who had two servants. Well, he had some servants. And this is what it says, I'll put it on the screen, you can look it up in Matthew 18 if you need to. It's page 986, I think it is. Jesus said, therefore the kingdom of heaven is like a king who wanted to settle accounts with his servants. As he began the settlement, a man who owed him 10,000 talents. Now, in our currency, that's about 5 million pounds, all right? Was brought to him. Since he was not able to pay, the master ordered that he and his wife and children and all that he had should be sold to repay the debt, which is what they did in those days. They still do in some parts of the world. Now, notice what happens. The servant fell on his knees before him. Be patient with me, he begged, and I will pay back everything. Now, he's talking rubbish, because even on the salaries of a servant in those days, someone has worked out it would take him a hundred lifetimes of employment to pay back the debt. 
But then something remarkable and unexpected happens in the story. We read that the servant's master took pity on him, cancelled the debt and let him go. The debt was written off, wiped out, totally undeserved and unexpected. Now, what Jesus is saying is, here's the amazing news. Every one of us is in debt to God because of the things we've done and the things we've failed to do. We are running up this enormous debt like some people do on their credit cards. And it's getting bigger and bigger every day and there's no way you can even pay off the interest, let alone pay off the capital sum. And it's getting worse and worse. And there's no way you can pay it off. People say, well, I think God keeps a kind of ledger in heaven, you know, and he lists all the good things you've done and all the bad things you've done. And when you die, he sort of tops them up. And if you're in the black, it's that way. And if you're in the red, it's down there. Listen, nobody, nobody will ever be in the black with God. We're all in the red and getting deeper in the red. But here's the wonderful news. This is what the wonderful good news Christians call the gospel is about. That God paid the debt we could never pay through the death of his son Jesus. Writing to the Christians in Ephesus, the Apostle Paul says, In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins in accordance with the riches of God's grace that he lavished on us with all wisdom and understanding. And Jesus paid the debt we could never pay. That's what we just sang about in our song. The amazement, my Lord, what love is this that pays so freely that I, the guilty one, may go free. Amazing love. Oh, what sacrifice the Son of God given for me. My death he dies, my death he pays, that I can go free. And when that happens, when you come to God and fall on your knees like the servant and say, Lord, forgive me. God has made a way so that the debt can be wiped out. And when that happens, something wonderful happens. He doesn't say to the servant, okay, now clear off and don't ever let this kind of thing happen again. He says, the other parable, welcome son, welcome daughter, you're now a member of my family. And that's why you can call him our father, my father. And that's where this relationship begins. So let me ask you if I may, because the most important thing in the world Are you a member of God's family? Have you experienced God's forgiveness? Can you look back like the servant in the parable, that wonderful day when you came to God in your great need and he said, it's finished, I'm wiped it out. Amazed, filled with joy. That's where we start needing God's forgiveness. But when we pray in this prayer then, as children of God, when we pray regularly, Father, forgive us our sins, we acknowledge that we need ongoing forgiveness. If that relationship with the Father is to be maintained. For so easily we sin against God. So easily we go our own way in word and thought and deed. The things we fail to do. We need God's forgiveness. And that's why in this prayer, very significant, if you look at your Bibles, it's linked in with daily bread. Every day, we need daily bread for our physical needs. We need daily forgiveness for our spiritual needs. In fact, in the original, it's linked very closely. Literally, in the original, it says, give us each day our daily bread and forgive us our sins. And if that relationship with God is to be maintained, then we need to keep short accounts with God. It's very important you don't let the debts run up. 
For the more we do this, the more we distance ourselves from God. You see, some of you here this morning, when I said, do you know what it is to know God's forgiveness? Some of you said, immensely said, yes, I remember. Maybe for some of you it was a gradual understanding, but for some of you it's a very significant thing. I can remember as a teenager that day in my own life, a long time ago. But I ask you this morning, how is your relationship with God this morning? Have you lost the joy of sins forgiven? Are there things that you've done that have still never been confessed? That have clouded the face of the Father and estranged you for Him? In his first letter, the Apostle John, the great Apostle of Love, wrote, The blood of God's Son, Jesus, purifies us from every sin. If we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. But if we confess our sin, God is faithful and just. He'll forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. So when we pray, and how often we need to pray, forgive us our sins, we confess that we've sinned against God and need God's forgiveness. And only in this way can your relationship with God be maintained. It's the same on human relationships. You may have fallen out with your closest friend, husband, wife, whatever it may be. Now you can let that kind of thing accumulate or you can swallow your pride and say, look, I'm really sorry we did this. And then things are brought back together again. In his excellent book on the Lord's Prayer, if you want a good book on the Lord's Prayer, our former pastor Derek Prime comments, the whole of the Christian life is to be one of continual repentance. That is to say, a daily turning from sin to God and a daily asking for his forgiveness where we have not turned away from sin quickly enough. Then he goes on, repentance rightly becomes a principle and a habit and we see our wrongdoing no longer as attractive but as loathsome. Our repentance does not merit our pardon by God but it prepares the way for it. As soon as we repent, our feet are effectively on the path of returning to the Lord. And as we do, we discover once more that his arms are flung wide open. You see, it's possible, I've talked enough to Christians to know this, that there's a cloud of guilt hangs over many Christians. They say, yeah, I remember that time when I became a Christian, but listen, I've done so much since then, there's no way God is ever going to welcome me back. And a little voice says, you just believe it, you're the worst sinner who ever lived. And you may well be, but I want to tell you that God is the most gracious Father who is still looking down the road, waiting to welcome you back with arms wide open. If you will only turn to Him. And some of us Christians who have been Christians a long time need to come this morning again in repentance and seek God's forgiveness. And you need to do it every day. So when we pray, forgive our sins, we learn something about how our relationship with God is maintained. But when we pray the second half, we learn a second vital truth. When we pray, for we also forgive everyone who sins against us, we learn how our relationship with our Father is demonstrated. There's been a lot of debate about the relationship between these two parts of this sentence, the connection between God's forgiveness and our forgiveness. Look what it says again. Forgive our sins, for we also forgive everyone who sins against us. In the version of the Lord's Prayer in the Sermon on the Mount, in Matthew 6, Jesus says, Forgive us our debts, as we also have forgiven our debtors. And he goes on later, it's the only part of the prayer that he explains in a bit more detail, Matthew 6, 14, 15, he says, For if you forgive men when they sin against you, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive men, their sins, your Father will not forgive your sins. Now, what is the connection? Does this mean, as it sounds, that we must first forgive others 
Otherwise, God won't forgive us. Does God forgive us on the basis that we've forgiven other people? I forgive them, then God forgives me. Does it mean that if I don't forgive other people, then God will not forgive me? Once again, the key to understanding this and to resolving these seeming dilemmas is to recognize that this is a prayer prayed by those who are members of God's family, those who know him as their heavenly father. We become members of God's family because God took the initiative, made a way by which we could be forgiven and reconciled to him by sending his son. So again, in that lovely first letter, the apostle John writes in 1 John 4.10, this is love, not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. God's love for us comes first. But then he goes on to say, very next verse, our love for others should follow. Dear friends, since God loved us, we ought to love one another. Those who have received God's love and forgiveness must and will show that love and forgiveness to other people. And that's the point of the parable about the two debtors, the one that we started off with. I just picture the scene again. Here's this man. He's just about to have his family thrown into prison, into slavery, and he's going to be thrown into prison for the rest of his life. That's the end of his real life. And his master has wiped out five million pounds, all right? Now, you just picture him leaving his master's presence. What do you think he looked like? I bet. Over the moon, you know, whatever phrase you want to come up with. You know? I bet he was singing, Oh, happy day. Well, maybe it wasn't, it wasn't written then, but okay. If it had been written then, he'd be singing, wouldn't he? It'd be, it'd, be, it'd be just fantastic. And we read in the story that the very first thing he, he did, he went to see one of his fellow servants who owned him a fiver. Now you can imagine what he did. He just got to his friend and said, Hey, you know that fiver you, you, know you owe me? And he said, Just forget it. He said, My master's just wiped out five million pounds. Is that what he did? Now, here's what happened in the parable. He grabbed him and began to choke him. Pay back what you owe me, he demanded. His fellow servant fell to his knees and begged him, be patient with me and I'll pay you back. Same words. On this time it's a five and up five million pounds, all right? But he refused. Instead, he went off and had the man thrown into prison until he could pay the debt. Now, how do you think the master reacted when he heard about it? He called him in. And I tell you this, if God has forgiven you so much, the teaching of this parable is absolutely clear, unless you forgive the little that people have done against you in comparison, you will be accountable to God. That's what it says in Matthew's Gospel again. Then the master called the servant in. Notice what he said. You wicked servant, he said. I cancelled all that debt of yours because you begged me to. Shouldn't you have had mercy on your fellow servant just as I had on you? In his anger, the master turned him over to the jailers to be tortured until he should pay back all he owed. And should we be in any doubt about the meaning of the parable, Jesus concludes with what it teaches. This is how my heavenly Father will treat each one of you unless you forgive your brother from your heart. We will cut ourselves off from the Father's forgiveness if we refuse to give. And our relationship with our Heavenly Father is demonstrated by our relationship with other people. The fact that we've been forgiven so much by God, our Father, is seen by the fact that we forgive so little in comparison with others. 
Now, you will only appreciate that so long as you live in the wonder of how much God has forgiven you and you know what it is to be forgiven so much by God. But, if this morning you have never really understood God's forgiveness and never really appreciated how much you've done against God and how much God has forgiven you, the debt that you owe, then what will happen? Well, the offences that other people do against you will be compared with your own. And what will happen in comparison with what someone else has done to you, then what happens in society, in relationships? Well, we just compare each other with each other. And resentment, even retribution, is the order of the day then. And an endless cycle of violence is seen, sometimes in some societies, when people take revenge on one another and there's no end to it. In contrast, the follower of Jesus, experiencing his great forgiveness day by day, forgives others day by day. In fact, that parable of the two debtors was triggered by a question that Peter asked Jesus. He said, then Peter came to Jesus and said, Lord, how many times shall I forgive my brother when he sins against me? Up to seven times? Wow. Jesus answered, I tell you, not seven times, but 77 times. Some versions say 70 times seven, which is 490. The point Jesus is making is that you need to forgive frequently. I got a thing the other week from British Midland. I sometimes, about four times a year, fly down to some missionary meetings with them in London. They want to encourage me to be a frequent flyer. And it's really sad because I don't qualify, so I never get in that nice lounge and get all the free goodies and everything else. I'll never be a frequent flyer, probably. But I need to be a frequent forgiver. And such is my life that other people need to frequently forgive me. So let me ask you this morning, are you a frequent forgiver? Or are you storing up resentment? If you do, then you deny God's forgiveness in your own life and you cut yourselves off from God's forgiveness. The New Testament scholar Tom Wright puts in a, in a lovely telling way what he says, failure to, failure to forgive one another wasn't a matter of failing to live up to a new bit of moral teaching. It was cutting off the branch you were sitting on. You think about that. It's, when you fail to forgive, it's cutting off the branch you're sitting on, which is God's forgiveness. Then he goes on to write, it is our birthright as followers of Jesus to breathe in the divine forgiveness day by day as the cool, clean air which our spiritual lungs need instead of the grimy, germ-laden air that is pumped out on us from all sides. And once we start inhaling God's fresh air, there is a good chance we'll start to breathe it out again too. As we learn what it is like to be forgiven, we discover and begin to discover it's possible, indeed a joyful thing, to forgive other people. It's only a picture, isn't it? Breathing in God's forgiveness. Breathing out God's forgiveness to other people. So are we doing that? Our relationship with our Father is demonstrated when we practice what we pray. When we forgive everyone, and notice the inclusive word there, everyone who sins against us. Now, we're almost through, but I come to the conclusion. Let me remind you where we've come. When we pray, forgive us our sins, 
our relationship with our Father is maintained. And when we pray for we also forgive everyone who sins against us, our relationship with our Father is demonstrated. But we've also seen there is another possibility, an awful possibility, which this prayer teaches us. That it is possible for our relationship with our Father to be damaged. And it is damaged in two ways. When we fail, first of all, to confess our sins. Now maybe there's been some really major thing that you have done. And you know about it. Maybe everyone knows about it. Maybe no one knows about it. And it needs to be forgiven. And this morning you're sitting there squirming because you know it's a reality. Many years ago, King David, the greatest king of Israel, a man after God's own heart, not many people it said of that in the Bible, sinned against the Lord. He committed adultery, then conspiracy, then murder, and then he covered everything up. And he thought he got away with it. One day, God sent a prophet to him who also told a parable. Don't have time to read it. You read it in 1 Samuel, in the Bible. But he said to him, you are the man, you've sinned. Now, at that point, he could have said, I'm the king, off with his head. But he said, I have sinned against the Lord. And he prayed a great prayer of forgiveness. If you need forgiveness, when you go home, make a note in your head, Psalm 51. Go home and pray Psalm 51. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love, according to your great compassion. Blot out my transgressions, wash away my iniquity, and cleanse me from my sin. But most of all, he said, Lord, restore to me the joy of your salvation. And one test whether you're living with sin in your life is this. Are you enjoying the joy of God's salvation? Are you as joyful now about your salvation as you were when you first became a Christian? Or is it old hat? Other things that have spoiled the relationship. Maybe there's some big thing that needs to be confessed. Can I say this? Maybe there's just some very small thing. That's not adultery. God forbid. Murder? Never. Maybe just some very small thing that is spoiling your relationship with God. We've been having trouble with our washing machine. We've had the repairers in. Fortunately, took out one of those insurance policies, so they have to pay for it. But anyway, and the man's looked at it and he replaced the whole switch. I think it's well over £100 worth. It still didn't work, it just kept sticking in the cycle. Suddenly thought to myself, said to my wife when he came, I never checked the filter at the bottom. Just checking to check that filter at the bottom. There's a little, if you've got a washing machine, you don't know this, a little filter at the bottom and it gets all the things that are plugged up in there. And he opened it up. It was a two-pence piece in there. It looked rather grimy. And one or two other things. Now, I'm not sure still whether it solved it, but I'll tell you this. Just one little thing like that can clog up the washing machine. And one small sin can spoil your relationship with God because sin is sin is sin. That one small thing. And it will damage your relationship with your father. Here's the second thing. Your relationship with your father is damaged when we fail to forgive others. Again, you may think back, maybe there's some big fallout in your home or your family. Again, I, I, sadly, I deal with people sometimes at, uh, at funerals and there are things sometimes that come out in families that are still go back, way back. And people have never resolved them, never forgiven them, sorted them out. Sometimes, I have to be honest, funerals are too late. And maybe there's some big thing that you need to sort out, some area that you need to forgive. 
But maybe it's just something small. You just said something and it hurt somebody. You did something that was misunderstood. You know what Jesus said? He said, he didn't say, he put it the other way around, he said, if your brother sins against you, if someone does something against you, you go and sort it out with them. You take the initiative. That's a challenge, isn't it? He didn't say, if they come to you, then forgive them. He said, no, no. If they sin against you, you go and sort it out and put it right. Because it will damage your relationship with your father. And these two parts of the prayer, forgive our sins, for we also forgive everyone who sins against us, reminds of the two ways in which our relationship with our Father can be damaged. And the two are connected. Uh, Sinclair Ferguson, the minister at the Tron, points out in his book on the Sermon on the Mount. It's what he says. If the words, as we have forgiven our debtors, stick in our throats, if they cannot be spoken without the names and faces of those we refuse to forgive coming into our minds, then the first part of the prayer, forgive us our debts, falls to the ground. The two are inseparably linked. For the man who knows his debt before God and turns to him for forgiveness is the recipient of such grace that he cannot but share it with others. Since God so loved us, we ought to love one another with the same love of forgiveness. And when we do this, when we forgive, then the rest of the prayer falls into place. Prayer is prayed in vain, for the Father's name is dishonoured and his kingdom is set back when Christians fail to forgive. Far better for us to show the family likeness, to be like the Father who forgives, like the Son who, even as they nailed him to the cross, prayed, Father, forgive them. And people will look at us as a community of forgiven people and individual, and they'll say, how can you react like that? And we can simply answer, it's because of the family that we belong to. And the Father, who has forgiven us. And when that happens, then God's name is hallowed. And in this way, his kingdom comes on earth as it is in heaven. But the challenge is, are you forgiven? Have you forgiven? Let's pray together.